this one word of gratitude, Yehuda, Judah, which means literally, thank God, will forever become part of the Jewish psyche. For at a certain point, the descendants of Israel will take on the appellation Yehudim, Judahites, Jews. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 10, Gratitude and the Birth of Judaism. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In November of 1789, George Washington, recently inaugurated as president in New York City, declared a national day of thanksgiving. The American Jewish Congregation of New York, known as Sherith Israel, immediately embraced the observance of the day. In this, the Jews of New York were guided by their spiritual leader, Gershom Mendes Satius, who had just recently joined other clergy in Washington's inaugural parade, very possibly the first time that a Jewish religious representative had participated in the installation of a head of state since the fall of Jerusalem. On Thanksgiving Day, Reverend Satius spoke at Sherith Israel, America's first Jewish congregation, which happens to be my congregation, delivering what was certainly the first Thanksgiving address in a synagogue since the adoption of the Constitution. In his sermon, delivered November 26, 1789, he expressed his profound gratitude for a government that was, quote, founded upon the strictest principles of equal liberty and justice. Then, on a Thanksgiving Day service several years later, Satius declared as follows, As Jews, we are even more than others called upon to return thanks to God for placing us in such a country where we are free to act according to the dictates of our conscience and where no exception is taken from following the principles of our religion. Thanksgiving in America, Satius is saying, is particularly incumbent upon Jews. Now, of course, Jewish thanksgiving, the expression of gratitude, does not begin with 1789 America, and rightly understood, it lies at the very origin of the faith known today as Judaism. This would mean that gratitude is not only a quintessential Jewish virtue, but one which, we may argue, is more than any other reflected in the very name by which we know our faith today. The man known as Jacob flees from his home and from his brother's wrath and spends the night at a mysterious site that unbeknownst to him is steeped in sanctity. This is testified to by the vision that he sees in his slumber. Genesis 28.12 And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Who are these angels? Are they meant to symbolize something? Or does the dream signify that Jacob actually lies at a locus of angelic ascension? Commentators diverge, but many do seek symbolism here. One such example is that of the 17th century Sephardic theologian Rabbi Menashe ben Israel, who drew on the rabbinic text known as Pirkei de Rabeliezer in arguing that the rise and fall of the angels represents the assortment of empires that would persecute, conquer, and exile the Jewish people throughout their history. But in the end, Menashe explained, those that rose would also fall, with Israel enduring, and ultimately, all of Jacob's dreams fulfilled. Thus, the nighttime vision depicts the many nights of darkness that would descend upon Israel, while also predicting Israel's eternity. It is a fascinating interpretation. But considering the tale of Jacob that is about to unfold, thinking of the long and winding road that he will encounter, the challenges that will abound, perhaps there is another intriguing understanding of Jacob's vision. 
Perhaps the angels in this tale do not represent kingdoms. Perhaps they represent the dream itself. Behold, the angels of God rise and fall. The prospects for the success of Jacob's dreams of the future rise and fall. No great dream succeeds immediately. There are achievements and also setbacks, ascensions and dissensions. The angels are the dream. There is no great leader without setbacks. No great and successful dreamer whose dream's prospects have not at one point plummeted. And after all, ladies and gentlemen, this dreamer himself, Jacob, dreams of becoming patriarch of a people, father of a nation. But few figures in the Bible experienced setbacks such as his. Years of exile, fleeing his murderous brother, suffering the apparent loss of a child, experiencing ultimately exile again in Egypt, only to return to the Holy Land after his death. It will be an extraordinary life, one of the most influential in history. But the chapters about him that will unfold will also be filled with apparent failures and so much pain. Every great dream fulfilled has failures. Every dreamer has moments in the wilderness. It is Jacob that will form the nation Israel, but his life would have so much more sadness than that of his patriarchal predecessors. And, as we shall see, what will be true of Jacob will also be true of the matriarchs who will join him in creating the house of Israel. Their legacy will also be eternal, but their lives will also be filled with so much suffering, love denied, dreams deferred. It is this theme that will occupy the chapters that follow. Jacob arrives in his family's Mesopotamian town, and there he encounters his cousin Rachel. She is stunningly beautiful, and he immediately falls in love. Her father, Jacob's uncle Laban, Lavan, agrees to the match in exchange for seven years of work, and in this Jacob enthusiastically engages. Chapter 19, verse 20. And Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had for her. Leon Cass has aptly described the exquisite nature of this verse. This is, he writes, for me, one of the most beautiful sentences of the entire book. No poet, Cass continues, has spoken better of love's power to inspire devotion, to lighten hardships, and to defy the ordinary course of time. And Cass also very cleverly compares it to a phrase from Shakespeare's The Tempest, where Ferdinand must labor at Prospero's command in order to marry Miranda. This my mean task, he says, would be as heavy to me as odious, but the mistress which I serve quickens what's dead and makes my labors pleasure. Thus, the seven years pass quickly for Jacob, but Laban at the last moment switches Rachel for her elder sister Leah, which Jacob does not discover until the morning after the wedding. He marries Rachel seven days later in exchange for seven more years of work. But of course, his true love is for Rachel. Leah, in contrast, in the Hebrew wording of the Bible, is snu'ah, hated. This means, as many note, not that Jacob hated her, but that she was less loved. And one who is denied love feels hated, resulting in the intense pain of a woman in an impossible position. God, in sympathy with her suffering, bestows children upon Leah, even as Rachel is barren. But this, in the end, results in the profound unhappiness of both. Denied children, Rachel finds Jacob's favoritism insufficient. Meanwhile, Leah longs so profoundly for her husband's devotion that her initial names for her children reflect little joy in the actual event of their birth and instead express her deepest desire. Genesis 29, 31. And the Lord saw that Leah was hated and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord hath looked upon my affliction, 
for now my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I am hated, he therefore has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. The names are now so famous that it is incredibly easy to overlook the profound pain that each of them expresses. The first, in Hebrew, Reuven, is literally in Hebrew, Reu ben, look, a son. It is a way of stating to Jacob what she has achieved, hoping for his love. But the name of the second son highlights that her hopes were in vain. Simeon, Shimon, is Shama Oni, that the Lord continued to hear her pain, which did not dissipate after Reuben's birth. The same can be said for the third name, Levi, which means attend, unintentionally predicting that the sons of Levi will ultimately attend the Lord in the tabernacle and temple. But for Leah, it is the attendance of her husband to her for which she hopes. Again, her dream is denied. But suddenly, for some reason, something changes, not with her husband, but with herself. It is only upon the birth of her fourth child that Leah chooses a name that expresses not her own very legitimate yearnings, but rather gratitude to God. Verse 35, And she conceived again and bore a son, and she said, This time I will thank the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. The Hebrew here is, Hapam odeh lahashem. This time I will just express hoda'ah, thanksgiving, gratitude to God. Therefore she named him Judah, Yehuda, which means literally, thank God. Here, no mention is made by Leah of Jacob, of spousal love. She merely recognizes a gift that has been given and engages in thanksgiving to the divine source of that blessing. Leah's gratitude reflects the fact that precisely because her life has so much pain, therefore she will be all the more cognizant, all the more grateful for whatever blessings that there are to be found. And this one word of gratitude, Yehuda, Judah, will forever become part of the Jewish psyche. For at a certain point, the descendants of Israel will take on the appellation Yehudim, Judahites, Jews. We are all Yehuda, even if we do not specifically descend from him or his tribe. This name that Leah bestows in gratitude will ultimately become our name. This, of course, will result from historical circumstances, the ultimate loss of the ten tribes and the survival of the southern kingdom of Judah but it will nevertheless be a name embraced by Jewish tradition. We are all Judah, and the unusual nature of Judah's naming here is a hint to us. For as we begin to learn about the story that is so often known as Joseph and his brothers, there will be a way of reading it as being about Judah and his brothers. Indeed, the most interesting individual in the tales that follow may be not Joseph, but Judah. And therefore, as that story begins, which will be several lectures from now, we must consider what the life and character of Judah will tell us about ourselves as Jews who are named for him. But for now, we already understand the essence of the appellation, Yehudi, Jew. To be a Jew is to be called to be grateful, and not in the perfunctory sense. The Hebrew for the word thank you, todah, comes from hoda'ah, meaning giving thanks. However, the word hoda'ah in Hebrew also means confession. To be modeh can mean either expressing thanks or to confess in court. This too hints to a later story about Judah that will have a dramatic confession indeed. But the etymology indicates something more basic and profound. 
Rabbi Isaac Hutner has noted that in order for a person to truly give thanks, he has to also engage in confession. He has to admit that he is not self-sufficient and that based on earlier experience, he had no reason, no right to truly expect the blessings that are suddenly bestowed. Every expression of true gratitude, ladies and gentlemen, is also a confession. How then, ladies and gentlemen, could the Jews, the Yehudim of New York, not embrace the national thanksgiving that Washington declared? How could they not express gratitude to America? After all, this thanksgiving, as Seisha said, was particularly incumbent upon us as Jews. Indeed so, for we bear the memory of the many empires, perhaps embodied by the angels of Jacob's dream, that oppressed us. How could we not have embraced thanksgiving? How could we not have seized the opportunity to express gratitude joined with confession that given our history, we had no right to expect such a gift? My own first Thanksgiving in Congregation Sherith Israel took place in the magical year when Thanksgiving and Hanukkah coincided, a moment known forever as Thanksgivingka, something that will not occur again for many thousands of years. Look it up and mark your calendars, everybody. In preparation for this event, I visited our synagogue's archives to read the writings of generations past. And there I was shown the original handwritten text of the sermon that Satius delivered on Thanksgiving Day, 1789. And as I held the precious pages of my predecessor, the barriers between past and present suddenly collapsed, and I felt a bond to the Jewish gratitude made manifest so long ago, thereby making my Thanksgiving in the present so much more meaningful. As an American, but also as a Yehudi, a Jew whose identity derives from gratitude. And if gratitude is not a natural emotion in our age in America, it is, perhaps, because too many in contemporary culture see themselves first and foremost as individuals and self-sufficient, having no sense of history, feeling that everything is due to them. The profound difference between Judah's name and that of his brethren inspires us to consider the implications for the future of Israel and ultimately for its very identity. When Rachel finally bears a child, the name that she bestows also represents not joy in the moment, but aspirations for the future. Genesis 30:24, And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Joseph, Yosef, meaning he will increase, is a prayer that the Almighty add another child to her own branch of the family. It is a plaintive plea, and the name Yosef, or Joseph, became a celebrated name among Jews, and not just among Jews. Interestingly, among Americans, we find not only Joseph, but the English equivalent. Thus, Increase Mather, the prominent Puritan leader in Massachusetts Bay Colony. But if the most quintessentially American holiday is Thanksgiving, an act that rightly understood was born with Judah's birth, then that reflects the fact that the legacy of the Bible, of Hebraic tradition, is bound up with the history of this country. And it is surely at the heart of some of the most important moments in the Jewish relationship with America. After World War II, following the liberation of Europe, several rabbis and Jewish scholars living in DP camps asked the leaders of the American armed forces for help in publishing a copy of the Talmud so that the Jewish survivors of the war could once again study the Jewish books of law that they loved so much and which they had not seen for several years. One might have expected the American army to refuse this request. After all, their job was to secure the peace, not go into the Jewish book business. Yet amazingly, the army agreed, believing apparently that the preservation of Jewish civilization against totalitarian forces of evil was an essential embodiment of the American way. And so, the army requisitioned a printing plant in Heidelberg 
which had served as a place for printing Nazi propaganda during the war. In 1948, two years after the initial request, it published 500 sets of what is known today as the Survivor's Talmud or also the U.S. Army Talmud. The Jewish survivors in the camps, of course, had had no right to expect the granting of their request. And it's therefore no surprise that these Jews, these Yehudim, added to the Talmud a preface, the work's only words of English, which contain one of the most remarkable expressions of hoda'ah, of gratitude and thanksgiving, that I have ever seen. It reads, This edition of the Talmud is dedicated to the United States Army. The Army played a major role in the rescue of the Jewish people from total annihilation, and their defeat of Hitler bore the major burden of sustaining the DPs of the Jewish faith. This special edition of the Talmud, published in the very land where but a short time ago everything Jewish and of Jewish inspiration was anathema, will remain a symbol of the indestructibility of the Torah. The Jewish DPs will never forget the generous impulses and the unprecedented humanitarianism of the American forces, to whom they owe so much. The Bible asks of us to be grateful and to remember the gratitude of the past. That, in part, is why we Jews today are so proud to be named for Judah. May the story of his birth make us ever grateful for the blessings in our own lives. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.